Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We don't really have a good martini today, but we've got a pretty good uh, aftertaste with the first one. That's not good. And then we've got uh, bad and crazy as usual. So, uh, Jim, let's start with a Senate race that Republicans really had high on the board to uh, help them take back the majority. And it's still very competitive. The latest uh, poll out of Trafalgar certainly has it within just a couple of points. But uh, Mark Kelly still leading over the Republican nominee, who is Blake Masters, after a pretty costly and and ugly Republican primary there that just wrapped up earlier this month. Uh, But now Masters is making headlines for reasons he would probably not prefer. And that's because he is making changes to his website on his abortion position now that he's actually the nominee. And let's just say his position's not getting more conservative on this. Uh, NBC News with the story, Arizona Republican Senate candidate Blake Masters softened his tone and scrubbed his website's policy page of tough abortion restrictions Thursday as his party reels from the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade. In an ad posted to Twitter on Thursday, Masters sought to portray his opponent, Democratic Senator Mark Kelly, as the extremist on the issue while describing his own views as common sense. Quote, look, I support a ban on very late term and partial birth abortion, he said, and most Americans agree with that. That would just put us on par with other civilized nations. Uh, And he says, basically, you're on par with China and North Korea if you're uh, for any abortion for any reason at any stage of the pregnancy. But just after it released the ad, Masters' campaign published an overhaul of the website, softening his rhetoric, rewriting or erasing five of his six positions. Uh, Master's language from before the election, before the refresh on the site, that he was 100% pro-life is now missing. Another notable deletion, a line that detailed his support for a federal personhood law, ideally a constitutional amendment that recognizes that unborn babies are human beings that may not be killed. So, uh, Jim, we see candidates all the time trying to be the most fill-in-the-blank during the primary season and then try to make us all forget that that's the position they held during the primary season on both sides of the aisle. Uh, Folks like Alexander DeSanctis, your colleague at National Review, not impressed with this. Her tweet today, pro-life to win the primary, mealy-mouthed backtracker when he gets to the general. Not going to cut it, Blake. The pro-life movement should give zero support to candidates and politicians like this. So, uh, Jim, what do you make of uh, the attempted rewrite here? (laughs) Not to mention the clumsy way in which it all went down. Well, before I tear into Blake Masters and the sense that up until very recently, this looked like a guy who was giving away what should be one of the most winnable seats for Republicans in this cycle. Uh, I should point out that just, you know, I think either today, uh, a poll from Trafalgar Group uh, says that Mark Kelly is only ahead by three. He has Kelly at 47.6%. Masters is at 44.3%. And don't we feel much more confident in the results when we see those decimal points? Clearly, it must be much more precise. But that's that's the best poll for Masters in a long time because a bunch of them had him trailing well outside the margin of error. And, you know, uh, Mark Kelly is basically this lump who's afraid to take positions until, you know, the last second. Uh, this should be a guy who Republicans can beat like a drum or at minimum be cont- you know uh, competitive with. Blake Masters is another Donald Trump endorsed candidate, but also I think intriguingly, he is a Peter Thiel endorsed candidate. A whole bunch of money put up for him in the primary, much like J.D. Vance. And uh, it sounds like a whole bunch of other Republicans are looking at Blake Masters campaign and saying, 
your general fundraising numbers are terrible and we're not going to invest more until your campaign does more. We're, you know, um, the fact that Mitch McConnell put uh, 20 some million dollars into the Ohio race indicates he sees something in J.D. Vance that makes that a good use of the money and he's not seeing it in Blake Masters. Moves like this one are not helpful. And what's more, it come on the heels of a comment that Masters referred to his policy page as a living document. Now, Greg, of all the arguments you can make on the abortion uh, <laughs> side, you know, if you're if you're a conservative, we don't want to hear the words living document in any context. Documents are dead, right? They are non-living things. They are paper. They can't grow. They can't breathe. They cannot evolve. But this is, looks like a very almost a cliched way of a candidate taking one set of stances for the primary and then not just pivoting to new issues or re-emphasizing certain issues or things like that, but then just pretending that this is this clattering noise as past positions are thrown out and Masters seems to hope no one will notice. Look, we will see. It's not over yet, but uh, certainly up until very recently, you know, Fox News having him down eight this looked like it was going to be a giveaway of a winnable seat and Republicans would have a lot, you know, conservatives had a lot of reasons to be real angry with Arizona Republicans who nominated this guy, knowing the controversial stances that he had, knowing that he had never run for office before, knowing that um, this was not necessarily a guy who knew how to run a successful campaign. I know people like outsiders, Greg, but, you know, think about your, your typical state legislator your state attorney general, somebody who's been elected to some statewide office before, is they know what the job entails. They've run before and they've won before, and they have some idea of what it takes to win a campaign. All of these outside, you know, I mean, Herschel Walker, this guy knows how to run over linebackers, but it's not clear he knows how to run a winning Senate campaign. And it doesn't mean you should never vote for the outsider. It just means that usually there's a learning curve. Usually learning to be a good candidate is some, everybody thinks they're just a natural born good candidate. Very rarely they are. Otherwise, you'd, we'd always be seeing our guys get elected the way we want. So um, hopefully Blake Masters has enough in him and enough around him to uh, turn it around. But moves like this one do not you know, inspire much faith from anybody. No, no. And you're right about the campaign, you know, basic blocking and tackling. How many times have we seen in Michigan and some other places where people couldn't even do the right stuff to get on the ballot? And then other times it's just, uh, you know, basic campaign tactics that you need to get done here. And, and nothing is going to endear you more to people than saying, you can trust me. I'm not like those politicians. Here's where I stand. And then three weeks later, be like, Never mind. I'm just going to pretend that I never said that. Um, and so, you know, saying you're opposed to abortion late term, I assume he means third trimester and uh, partial birth abortion. That's that's quite a bit different than saying you want a personhood amendment. So, yeah. uh, Blake Masters, uh, you, you didn't do this right at all. And so there's there's three major Peter Thiel funded candidates uh, running for Senate right now. Uh, Vance, Oz and uh, Masters and uh, at least two out of three. Looking like they're in trouble right now, although oh, Masters, if the Trafalgar poll is right, is certainly still in contention. But speaking of Trafalgar, uh, they also released a poll this morning. Now, it's from South Carolina, which, of course, is perhaps more conservative than, than most states. But the numbers here are on abortion are, are pretty significant because they, they break it down. The Democrats, you know, want to accuse the Republicans of, uh, you know, absolutely, you know, leaving pregnant women out to die if, if there's a problem with their pregnancy. You know, they, they've even claimed that ectopic pregnancies and so forth, uh, you couldn't have those treated and so forth or miscarriages. Uh, none of that's true, of course. But they broke it down where people actually stand on abortion. And yes, this is only one state, but 
should be legal in the first trimester until a fetal heartbeat can be detected. 19.7% say yes. Illegal, except in the case of rape, incest, or life of the mother. 24.3%. Uh, illegal, except in the case of the life of the mother. 17%. So Trafalgar points out that really 61% of people in South Carolina uh, think that it should be, you know, once a heartbeat can be detected or sooner than that. Uh, legal in the first and second trimester, only 28.2%. Legal up until the moment of birth, including partial birth, just 10.8%. So if Republicans can play offense on this instead of constantly being forced on defense, uh, they could make this issue work to their advantage. But of course, the media and, and the Democrats smell blood in the water, and most Republicans are, are running away from it instead of trying to actually point out where the Democrats are the extremists. You know, uh, we have this both as a uh, my colleague Rich Lowry's uh, column, and we discussed this a bit on the editors and the entire most recent issue of National Review is about you can't run. Look, can you accidentally end up with a majority in the House and Senate by not having an agenda and by just being the opposition and saying, blah, we don't like how things are going? Yeah, you can. But for, for the both for the good of the country, the good of the party, the good of your uh, ability to build political capital, candidates should run on agenda. And on abortion, candidates should not have any doubts or any you know questions about how they feel about this. You know, of all the issues that a Republican candidate could be quiet about or not clear about what their position is, Greg, you know, besides the usual, oh, the Supreme Court's got a big abortion case coming before it, we had the Alito draft leak. They had months to get ready for this. So there, really, there's no excuse for Republicans not being ready to talk about the issue of abortion in detail and be articulate and be persuasive about it. Yeah, yeah, it's mind boggling. Absolutely mind boggling uh, when you think about it. And anyway, I remember back in 1994, I know that makes me old now, Jim, but I know you remember it too. And Newt Gingrich had the contract with America and he had uh, you know existing members and uh, you know Republican nominees who were trying to unseat Democrats come out to Washington and sign it. And then the Democrats put out these commercials with people slowly bending over to sign the contract with America with ominous music. And it looked like, oh, these people are all Newt Gingrich minions. And then they crushed the Democrats and won whatever it was, 52 seats or whatever, because they had an agenda on stuff that was broadly supported by the American public. They'd be smart to do it again, but they're not. I don't know why. All right, on to our bad martini, officially our bad martini now, Jim. And uh, you wrote a lot uh, this week already about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, media has generally lost interest in it or, or comes back every now and again to, to talk about something that's uh, developed in significance there. But it's certainly not wall-to-wall -wall coverage or even consistent coverage, really, uh, from most mainstream media outlets. Uh, but one thing that is getting attention now is what the price of energy is going to be in much of Europe this winter as a result of Russia tightening the screws on people who are supporting Ukraine. This is from the Free Beacon. The cost of electricity and gas for the average British household will nearly double in the coming months as Russia slowly cuts its gas supply amid its war with Ukraine. And it cites the New York Times with that report. Britain is among the many European countries facing rising energy costs as Russia tightens the screws on energy imports amid the war. Last week, Russian gas giant Gazprom announced it would temporarily close its pipeline to Germany for quote-unquote repairs, though many believe Russia means to unsettle and drive up prices in Europe, according to the Times. Just before Russia invaded Ukraine, it supplied a third of Germany's oil, around half its coal, and more than half of its gas. And so you're seeing these clips, certainly from conservative circles, circulating about how 
Trump at the UN was warning Germany, don't get so dependent on Russian energy. It's, it's going to cost you. And now we see already energy costs soaring in Germany. It's going to be double in, in Britain and most other places in Europe as well um, because of, of what Russia is about to do. So it's going to be a long and very cold winter in a lot of places. So yesterday's corner post about Ukraine was uh, spurred in part by the cover of The Economist that asks, are the sanctions working? And if you read inside, the answer is, nah, not really. Um, you know, you, down the road, it's going to have really catastrophic impacts on Russia's economy. Clearly, there's been some impact. But right now, the projection is Russia's economy is going to shrink about 6% uh, for the year. When in the beginning, when these sanctions were put in place, people were thinking a you know, Russian economy would drop by like 15%. Uh, they found alternate markets for their energy exports. It's not going to send it to Europe, and that there's a good chance that's going to hurt Europe more than it's going to hurt Russia. So I wrote about this, and I was like, you know, you see, like, considering the consequences of the war, you would think this would be a big story day in and day out, right? We got a global famine that it is exacerbating. We got a global energy market crisis, right? You know, the idea of a long cold winter in in Germany. It wasn't that long ago that Biden was saying about Putin's tax hike on food and Putin's tax hike on groceries and all that stuff. Um, we had the bombing of that uh, daughter of that you know nutty ideologist out in Moscow. We have a Putin critic who fell, you know, committed suicide. Uh, you can't see me making the air quotes. Maybe he did commit suicide. I don't know, but certainly seems ominous there. There's worries about the war spreading. Um, you had two countries join NATO. Like it's really consequential, and yet it feels like the media's interest in it kind of you know bobs up about once every two weeks. It feels like you hear about Ukraine. So what's going on here? And my, my sneaking suspicion is, but yes, you, if you want to say Americans aren't interested in foreign news, okay, yeah, you know, we've had that lament for a very long time. If you want to argue that, uh, you know, news organizations don't have as many resources as they used to, and they don't have as many foreign bureaus, or they're not as well equipped to cover a story like this, okay, all right, I can see that. But I also can't help but think is that this is not a story that's particularly good or flattering to the Biden administration. Joe Biden campaigned as the guy as, you know, when I'm elected, Vladimir Putin's days of bullying Eastern Europe are over. Well, that didn't pan out the way it was. Then there was the effort to deter the invasion. And even if you put aside the, you know, minor incursion comment, Biden policies did not success that way, did not succeed in that. And here we are six months later, the war has been a stalemate. Allegedly, the Ukrainians are launching a, a major counteroffensive. And, you know, you'd like to see that succeed. But it looks like it's been a long, bloody, ugly stalemate with a lot of casualties on both sides and that, you know, nobody is particularly winning, which is not really the outcome uh, that most people in the West would like to see. And there's kind of this, you know, nagging. My colleague, Michael Brendan Doherty, points out, I think, a very fair. He and I have see foreign policy very differently, but I think he raises a very valid point. That once again, in terms of arming the Ukrainians and giving them weapons, it's the United States that's doing the heaviest lifting. And Europe, which is much closer to the battle, should have much more skin in the game, is doing much less. So the only effort, only effort to rebalance NATO that we thought we were seeing during the Trump years appears to be undermined very quickly. And it all up, I think this is not a good story for the Biden administration. And I think it's one that kind of a lot of Americans are, you know, disquieted by. I think they're, they're grumbly about it. I think we're, we're wary about how things are going there. And so I think the media's answer is to just not pay that much attention to it. It's just not that interesting for on a, on a day-to-day basis, which is not good for an informed public. I also think it's not good for the discussion of these big, complicated issues. Um, so all of it, it's, it's pretty bad. And I think the warning signs about Europe, maybe it'll be something that Americans can't ignore, or maybe, you know, Europe having a freezing winter and then unable to get natural gas and heating oil 
Uh, maybe that'll be a strong, that'll just be one more issue that the media can lose interest in very quickly. <laughs> well, they're going to have their own energy issue right here in the United States to deal with, if uh, Jazz Shaw's is correct, over at Hot Air. Uh, President Biden is depleting the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is currently at its lowest level in 37 years. On July 26, 2022, the Department of Energy announced an emergency sale from the reserve of up to 20 million barrels, which will go through the end of October, just prior to the midterm election in November. And along with that announcement, Goldman Sachs revised its forecast for gasoline prices to then shoot back up to $5 a gallon by the end of the year. Previously, the price forecast was $4.35 a gallon. That's because despite the Biden releases, the market must still balance demand with tight supplies. But according to Goldman Sachs, a sustained $5 price should eventually solve the market deficit. The $5 gas price is accompanied by an expectation of $130 uh, cost per barrel of Brent crude. So, uh, Jim, you know, we heard nothing from Biden about uh, responsibility when the gas prices were shooting up until June. He takes credit for it virtually every day, even though it's really just plummeting demand uh, for the prices going down over the last several weeks. And uh, my guess is that uh, once these start shooting up again, uh, once the midterms are behind him, he's going to pretend like it's all Putin's fault again. I'd say it's like a light switch. You know, he turns on the blame for Putin, turns off the blame for Putin. But um, maybe I shouldn't use that metaphor because, uh, uh, you know, obviously light switches may not be working in this country pretty soon. <laughs> That's true. And as it pertains to our president, I like to quote the great poet Robert Palmer, the lights are on, but you're not home. And that not only relates to him, but also his policies. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now. And for this, we go straight to the pages of your morning jolt, where you take a little bit of a departure from your usual fare of uh, breaking down politics and policy and, and things like that uh, to take a look at woke culture. You say, is American culture boring or just woke? Uh, you talk about how things that were popular a long time ago are are popular again. You talk about Stranger Things. And uh, basically, you know, Hollywood's kind of tying its hands, handcuffing itself, because it's certainly trying to march in, in lockstep in the woke world. But once you restrict yourself in so many different areas, you know, you really ruin your chances to tell an interesting, you know, story that could have a lot of different dimensions because you're basically censoring yourself in a lot of different areas. So is this why we're constantly seeing nothing but sequels and reboots? I was going to say, so this is spurred by a column by Michelle Goldberg of the New York Times, uh, she's left of center. I don't agree with her on much of anything, but I think she may have expressed a thought that uh, people across the political spectrum may, you know, say, oh, that that that, I, that resonates with me. Uh, anybody, if you have something in pop culture that you've loved recently, great. I, I'm glad to hear that. I hope I'm glad something really struck a chord with you. But I, I think um, you know, she begins by quoting a, a literary critic who says, Hollywood movies are boring. Television is boring. Pop music is boring. The art world is boring. Broadway is boring. Books from big publishing are boring. You know, this idea of just nothing seems to excite them anymore. And whether or not you feel that way, I certainly feel like I find fewer things that I fall in love with. I'm like, oh my God, you're the, the kind of thing where like, you got to share it with somebody. Um, good example uh, ironically, Christopher Nolan's Memento, the movie about a guy who's dealing with amnesia and it's told mm -hmm. in these 15 minute increments, saw the movie, was so wowed by it that I went out, found Mrs. Garrity and said, we have to watch this movie right now. And I watched it twice in one day. You know, <laughs> well, you know if you can find something where you're like, wow, that is a masterpiece, you know, and you just can't wait to share it with people. That's a great feeling. And it just feels like things are not stirring that. And I was struck by this other section. I saw a lot of people 
uh, quoting this segment that says, I can think of no recent novel or film that provoked passionate debate. Public arguments that people do have about art, about appropriation and offense usually have grown stale and repetitive, almost rote. She goes through a whole bunch of reasons for this, including the idea that there isn't a monoculture anymore, meaning we don't just have three network channels, which means there's now a million channels, tons of streaming services. And so, yeah, it's not surprising people aren't all talking about the same TV show, movie, book, uh, pop artist or something like that because everybody's watching different stuff. So you're not going to have the people you, you people you live with, your friends and neighbors, they're not all going to be interested in the same thing anymore. Yeah, that that, that kind of makes sense. But I think there's more to it. And Goldberg's column just does not uh, touch this really at all, which is, you know, is it part of it a reflection that Hollywood has largely gone woke? Um, now we can argue about what actually specifies woke, but I think we can all agree when you set out to make a political polemic, this side is the good side. That side is the bad side. And my bad side is going to be Republicans or they're going to be rednecks. They're going to be Christian conservatives. They're going to be evil CEOs and corporate, you know, all the standard left-wing trope villains. It's very boring after a while. And, and what's interesting is that you have, much as we see this overabundance of news sources serving the left side of the aisle and increasing competition and a tougher competition over get, you know, a, a small audience that there is for that, Whereas Fox News has the right of center audience all to itself. I think it's very similar in entertainment that there are a lot of people who are competing for those left of center uh, entertainment dollars. And after a while, they all kind of start to sound the same. And it's very tough to do something that's that new or that different or that exciting. But the other thing I point out is that when, you're, when your creative process is hemmed in by this woke ideology, Let's use the uh, greatest work in, in Western civilization, Greg. And by that, I mean Die Hard. Of course. Um, you know, in Die Hard, we'll start with the first one. John McClane is a deeply flawed character, right? His wife has gone out to work for this big corporation out in LA, and he was not supportive. He, he told her she should not go. And now his marriage is uh, possibly on the verge of collapsing. He's separated from his kids. Uh, and he's got a lot of angst about it. And he's both angry at her, but I think he's also angry at him. Uh, he can't really control his temper very well. Their, interact their interaction at the beginning of the movie doesn't go very well. And, you know, so on the one hand, look, we know John McClane is generally a good guy. He's a good cop. Um, he's rough around the edges. He doesn't really, he can't really blend in well at the uh, Nakatomi Corporation's Christmas party. He kind of stands out like a sore thumb. And interestingly, he doesn't really care if he stands out like a sore thumb. He doesn't really feel any need to put forth his best possible, uh, you know, he doesn't feel any need to impress her coworkers or anything like that. Clearly he's kind of brimming with resentment of his wife and her job and what this whole thing means. That once their, her life is in danger, he realizes what's really most important in life and he becomes this heroic character. Hans Gruber, arguably, if not, you know, one of the greatest villains, if not the greatest villain of all time. Sure, he's terrible. Sure, he seems like a terrorist. Sure, he's actually being a thief. Spoiler alert, but it's been several decades. You've had time to catch this up. And if you're listening to this podcast, I'm pretty sure you've seen Die Hard. You know, Gruber's a villain, but he's funny and he's yes. sophisticated and he's debonair and he's clearly meticulous. He's thought every detail through. He knows exactly how the police are going to respond. He's come up with the perfect crime, a way to get away with hundreds of millions of dollars and let everybody believe that uh, it was all blown up and, you know, to escape perfectly. It's, you know, you don't have to, you know, you're not rooting for Hans Gruber, at least I hope you're not. He's, he's, he's a really bad, bad guy. But he and his whole international team 
Tony and uh, the rest of them, they all just are this, you know, they're sleek professionals. They're good at what they do and they almost seem to take pride in it. Or when the guy decides to steal the candy bar, like we relate to, these are very relatable bad guys, right? So there's just something, this makes this very interesting. Now, here's the thing. If your movie is about how Democrats are good and Republicans are bad, or progressives are good and and conservatives are bad, you can't make your villains nuanced because then the audience might think, oh, they have a point or there's something not so bad about them. You can't make your heroes flawed because then people might say, oh, wait a minute, maybe the Democrats and progressives aren't the good guys after all. So I think in the end, when you know Michelle Goldberg is complaining about a lack of creativity and a sense that everything that's being offered in pop culture is uninspiring and predictable and trite and all that stuff, I think some of it is that we, the woke storytelling has kind of been worn out, that there's just nothing new. There are no new directions to go in it. It's been done before. It's been done before. And now it's a cliche and it's kind of tired. And you kind of just, uh, you know, as soon as the white guy in a suit shows up, you're like, well, there's, he's the villain. It's going to be bad. And of course they're the, you know, one dimensional. And so I, that's my sense of what's going on here. Um, but if you, if you disagree, you're certainly willing to let me know and I'll probably ignore you. <laughs> Well, see, Die Hard is perfect for scratching all the itches. They don't love the corporate scene there at Nakatomi. So mm. if you don't like that, you're going to you're gonna be pleased. If you don't like the media, you're definitely going to be pleased. If you're not a big fan of uh, the government, uh, you're going to be pleased. The FBI. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the FBI. And so, you know, just, uh, just an average guy trying to do his best. That should appeal to just about everybody. And that's one of the many, many reasons why Die Hard is spectacular. The also, heroes if- of the movie are uh, New York City police detectives, LAPD beat cops, even if they've shot a kid. Yep. Um, you know, Takagi seems like an honorable guy somewhat, you know, uh, Ellis is terrible. Uh, we kind of root for, we're, we don't feel all that sad when Ellis <laughs> dies. Um, what are the less? Oh, and obviously um, limo drivers are, are the very finest human beings. You can count on them to always stay, but stick by it. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Speaking of the woke scriptwriters, uh, Ellis's speech to uh, Hans would be about a third of the length if it were written today, considering who he suspected Hans might be mad at uh, as, as to why he was conducting this terrorist operation. But uh, anyway, if that hasn't whetted your appetite to go watch Die Hard for the first time or for the umpteenth millionth time, uh, well, I don't know how to help you at this point. But uh, Jim, uh, I know what I'm going to do later today. <laughs> see, you, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. Thank you also very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Also, remember to get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Remember Jim's brand new novel, Gathering Five Storms, the short story, Saving the Devil. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Tuesday, and please join us again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. You know, a lot of the media doesn't cover some of the most important news of the day. I'm Byron York with The Byron York Show. In my latest episodes, I will talk about how new information is still coming out about the Mar-a-Lago raid, and it looks a lot like some old conflicts, as the public is demanding answers. And I'm also going to talk about how the IRS is enormously expanding, spending billions of taxpayer dollars in doing so. I don't talk about every single issue, just the ones you need to know the most. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.